Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Locks of Love, Mona Foundation, and Native American Rights Fund. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charities, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. And today we're going to have a little bit of a script flip. Normally, I am the one who's asking the questions and we get a guest to respond to those questions. But today we're going to have a student from DePaul University who is in a class taught by my dear friend, Lisa Dietland, who will be asking me the questions. And Laura is a very highly, highly regarded student taking the class in resource development at DePaul University. And this was supposed to be her interviewing me for a part of her class. This is an assignment that she was given in her class. And so we decided to make the answers into a podcast. So, Laura, thanks for joining. And I look forward to trying to answer your questions. Great. Okay, so if you can introduce yourself, Art, that would be great, just for the sake of starting the recording. I'm Herman Art Taylor. Most people call me Art. And for the last 21 years, I've been the president and CEO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, which is a monitoring organization of charities. We evaluate charities to help people know if the organizations are trustworthy. And we do that by scaling them or I guess evaluating them against 20 standards for charity accountability that we've established along with many others in the charity sector to determine that these in fact are the standards that charities should be held accountable to. These evaluations help charities get better at their work and they also help people make informed giving decisions. You can find the reports we produce from these evaluations on our website, give.org. Now, I also mentioned that I have a podcast, which you're listening to now. We call the Heart of Giving podcast. And in this podcast, we seek to help people who are currently sitting on the fence, deciding whether or not they should be in some ways giving back. And we also help people who are in the field now doing community work and charity work to stay engaged and motivated and to be inspired to continue that work. 
Now, I think this podcast is really helpful in doing that. And this is because we are telling stories of some pretty amazing people who are doing that work right now. And in these people, I think many can see themselves. And so in a nutshell, I think it's great. And we've gotten some good feedback. And so I think it's the right thing for me to be doing right now. Given the plethora of societal needs means that there's nonprofits working for almost every issue. How do you decide which charity you're going to evaluate and rank? Okay, so from an evaluation standpoint, we focus mostly on those charities that people ask us about. We look at emails and letters from people who write us wanting to know about an organization that's soliciting them. So those will be the organizations that we'll reach out to first to try to get information to do an evaluation. The second group of organizations are those who come to us seeking to be evaluated because they want to demonstrate their trustworthiness to the public. Now, we want to make sure that organizations are publicly soliciting so that if people are not being asked for money by these charities, then those are not likely ones that we would evaluate because our objective here is to help donors to charities. So that's why we focus on ones primarily soliciting the public. Now, we also do not evaluate colleges, universities and hospitals and many religious organizations or houses of worship. Although we do evaluate faith-based charities, but not churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, etc. And the reason we don't evaluate those is that we believe that the people who make up the congregations of those houses of worship, they know those organizations a lot more than we'll ever know. And for those who are in colleges and universities, well, they're soliciting primarily alumni. So there's no need for us to evaluate them because the alumni know the college pretty well. And lastly, we don't generally evaluate hospitals because, as you can imagine, hospitals get mostly fees for their services. So people can evaluate for themselves whether the organization is is serving them well. Now, there are some hospitals that we will evaluate if they are, in fact, publicly soliciting for uh, funds. What are things that charities should focus on in order to be considered trustworthy and to be functioning? By functioning, I mean that the cause of the charity is working towards being addressed directly. Well, we think the most important thing for a charity to do is to follow through on its promises. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always going to fulfill its promises. But when it doesn't, it should communicate that to its donors. So if I sent a letter out to you saying we're going to plan to do X, Y, Z and we don't do that, then the public should want to ask, well, why didn't you do it? And it doesn't mean, again, that you did anything wrong. It may have been that you discovered that you as you got into it, that it didn't make sense to do XYZ and it makes more sense to do something else that's more effective and that's fine. But the important thing is to be transparent. So transparency is a principle that underlies charities and should be something that every charity is all about. But as far as standards go, we cover four broad areas. One is governance. So that is the leadership of an organization. How well is the organization's board functioning? 
The second area is how transparent and accurate is the organization in the public communications and fundraising practices. And the third is how they're managing their finances. And fourth, of course, is are they doing assessments of their impact or effectiveness? These are the four broad areas. Following up on that fourth broad point is like, what kind of assessments have you seen that organizations do in order to see their impact on the area? Like, what have you noticed is like the most effective way of assessing these impacts? Yeah, so it all starts with a plan and establishing goals. And when an organization does that, what we're looking to know is whether they've actually assessed the performance against those goals in that plan. Other organizations will use tools such as a logic model to sort of think through what their inputs, outputs, outcomes and impact is and try to put that format in a way that those answers flow into an understanding of how well they're performing. Other organizations might use a tool that we've established some years ago with independent sector and candid called charting impact and charting impact presents five questions that an organization should be able to answer in order to determine the effectiveness of its work. Now this is a very growing and still, I would argue nascent area. There's no one approach that is more or less effective or one that gives one that presents a best practice over another. And at least in my opinion, I'll put it that way. But what's important is an organization establishes goals and follows through to try to make sure that is working toward and and in some cases, hopefully achieving those goals. Now on that, there's a big question around whether or not an organization is establishing goals proportionate to the resources that the organization has. And we have to be very careful not to sort of press organizations too hard to achieve goals because that can tend to push them away from, in my opinion, being creative and innovative and risk-taking, if you follow me. So have you ever had a situation in which you granted a charity as trustworthy and it turned out to be false and that charity was actually not as legit as you thought? If so, how did you handle that situation? Yeah, so every time we evaluate a charity, We tell them that this evaluation is good until we find out information that says otherwise. We've had several instances over the years where charities we've accredited, we find out later on through other information that there are things about them that we need to re-explore. So usually when that happens, we come across information that says that the charity isn't Um, what we thought it was, we'll send them a battery of questions about their accreditation. And we'll ask other questions about the incident that came up that sort of gives us pause about whether they continue to meet our standards. And the charity will have a usually short period of time, a small window to respond to these questions. And we'll then use the answers to determine if they continue to meet standards. 
a lot of times they'll send us answers to questions we ask, and that leads to more questions. And so there may be several rounds of this before we can get to a point where we're satisfied that the issue that we're concerned about is either valid or not valid. A great example was Wounded Warrior Project some years ago. Wounded Warrior Project was criticized because of excessive spending. And we did the work again, going back and forth with Wounded Warrior and discovering that many of the criticisms against the organization were, in fact, not valid. One criticism I continue to hold on to is the one that criticized them for spending three million dollars on a conference. Well, after we did the work, we discovered that it was only one million that they actually spent on the conference. And we also noticed that given the number of people that went to the conference, they were averaging somewhere around nine hundred dollars per person for a three day conference, which included room, food and board uh, and, and travel room, travel and board, which for us didn't seem like a whole lot of money for a conference. And so our response was, well, if we're going to criticize Wounded Warrior for having a conference, we're going to have to criticize every charity that has a conference because we think they did it without essentially wasting money. The conference fees and costs seem pretty reasonable to us. And we need charities, of course, to have conferences because it helps them do their work better. And every donor should be happy if a charity does its work better. So uh, sometimes, you know, we find out information that isn't accurate and we have to to help the charity demonstrate that. In other cases, we find out that the charity did, in fact, have issues that we need to address. So now I have kind of a follow up question. It's not really an interview question. It's more like we mentioned the term earmarking and I did learn about that. I took a class last year yeah, around this time called humanitarian logistics. So it's exactly what it sounds like logistics but for humanitarian purposes. <laughs> and we spoke about earmarking in terms of donations. Why do why do organizations do that? Why if you have like a response to this, why do they not allow flexibility according to the needs of who they're trying to donate to? So the whole question of earmarks is one that can be easily understood when you think about why people earmark their donations, but it's also challenging sometimes for charities to deal with money that's earmarked. So let's get into it a little bit. Essentially, what we're talking about is not technically called an earmark. Earmark is more of something that we talk about in government. What we're really talking about in a charity situation is a restricted gift. And gifts can come with lots of different restrictions on them. They can be restricted in terms of how they're supposed to be used. They can be restricted for the time in which they must be used. They can be restricted for a whole variety of other reasons that people want to restrict them. They can go into an endowment where they can only be used as the corpus earns interest. So there are lots of different ways of restricting funds. They can be permanently restricted, temporarily restricted. The reason for restrictions is to help the donor make the 
gift, go to the issue, specific challenge or way of serving that that donor wants to see the organization use that money. Now, from a charity standpoint, though, a restricted gift is great if you're raising money, if you're going out and raising money for a particular thing that that restriction matches. But generally, organizations prefer unrestricted gifts that give them the freedom and flexibility to use that money in the best way for the charity to accomplish its mission. Some issues that come up with restricted gifts, particularly around, like, say, disasters, are that people want the money that they give to go to a particular disaster. And that's fine if the organization is raising money for a particular disaster or for for a particular event. Generally, though, you're going to find that most charities will not raise money in that way. What they will do is they'll say, we have a fund, and that's kind of restricted too, we have a fund for all disasters or for all incidents like this, and you can support us through that fund, and we will use it for different events that come up as we see the need. And charities that do this avoid the problem of violating donor intent. Donor intent is key in managing restricted gifts for charities. They always want to make sure that they are considering what the donor wanted and honoring that request. As I said, I think it's more commonplace these days for organizations to try to raise unrestricted dollars. And as we're seeing with even really wealthy donors like Mackenzie Scott, much of that money that Mackenzie Scott gives is completely unrestricted for the organization to use as it sees fit to manage its operations and to further its mission. This way of giving is beginning to have its own terminology. People refer to this now as giving with trust or trust-based philanthropy, I guess is the way it's mostly referred to. Because in order to give a restricted gift, you truly have to trust that the organization is going to make the best use of that money without the parameters that come from a donor's restricted gifts. So I hope, and I know a lot of organizations do as well, that the trend continues toward unrestricted gifts. Because as we're seeing in the world today, many things that we plan to do, we have to change because the world changes right before our very eyes. If you, for instance, got restricted money during COVID to plan a in-person event and then suddenly you can't do an in-person event, then the money's just going to sit there and you don't want that. So it would have been better to say this money is going to go to the organization to use in a way that it sees fit. We're going to have lots of things come up that causes organizations to have to shift. And we want to make sure that they have the resources to make that shift to solve the problems in a way that they need to solve those problems.
In your fundraising journey, what is one of the most challenging things you've experienced repeatedly? What's your best advice for a new fundraiser to be as efficient as possible? Well, fundraising, and, and I was having this conversation yesterday with an organization whose fundraising committee of the board was primarily the board chair. And they've pretty much started over with how they're going about raising money. They've been very effective in the past because they had a chair and a few other board members who were very connected to wealthy givers, but they didn't really have a fundraising organization. And I believe you need a fundraising organization because while people on your board may have great connections, this will not assure that the organization has consistent fundraising results when those people go away. So so you need to have a fundraising organization. And in a fundraising organization, what you're doing is promoting your organization appropriately in the public space. You're identifying new donors to introduce your work to them and to become more aware of what you're doing. You are establishing relationships with them so that you can move them along as donors from small amounts to larger amounts. You want to move people along their journey with your organization to where they're going from awareness to actually feeling like they're a real part of what you're doing. Those are the people who are going to be funding you over the long term. And that's what you want to have. Now, you also need to make sure you have you need to have professionals who know what they're doing and who are committed and dedicated to making sure that you're fundraising effectively and ethically. So on the website of your organization, your position is president and CEO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. What exactly are your tasks and can you walk me through a day in your shoes working as the president slash CEO? So I tend to view my role in the organization as one of the ultimate decision maker, of course. But I try my best to not be in a position where I have to make a lot of decisions. I think in today's world where organizations are moving so fast and we're getting hit with so many challenges and opportunities, we have to push as much decision making down throughout the organization as possible. And we have to give people in the organization the freedom to make decisions and to be creative and to collaborate with others so that we can make the best holistic decisions and effectuate the work. I view my work as leader of the organization is establishing the organizational organization's culture. I believe that I and the rest of the people in the organization own the culture. We want to make sure that we're operating ethically. We want to make sure that we keep the fire burning in each of us to achieve our mission as best we can. We want to be creative and innovative. We want to take some risk where appropriate. We want to manage our resources well, and we want to think about the future to make sure that we're always getting to the future as early as possible. So that would say that I would say is how I see my role in the organization. And of course, you know, we have to always be mindful of whether we're treating people well and whether they feel that they are part owners in the activities of the organization and that they are being treated fairly and equitably and that we value everything they bring to the organization. We want to make sure that we're giving people good feedback about their performance 
so that they can constantly improve. And as you know, every organization has to constantly work to improve. Okay, cool. And I have like another side question addressing what you said. Uh, So I tend to be a little bit indecisive myself. (laughs) So when it comes to making big decisions with your organization or kind of advising someone who is seeking your decision on a a variety of options, like any internal method to like kind of decide like what's the best option because for example let's say a b and c you got the three options a and b are pretty good and c isn't the best option how do you kind of make that final decision to be like i would advise to go with b for example i've learned over the years and i even believe more now in this world that is so dynamic that we have to make decisions based on the severity of an issue So if something is really big, is a really big decision that we have to make that could have long term implications for the organizations, I'm going to tend to want more information and and take more time before I make that decision. I'm going to get more stakeholders involved before I make that decision. Now, on a smaller day to day decision, I'm going to perhaps spend less time. I'm going to assure that people who are closest to the work make those decisions. So the question you might ask is, well, how do you know what a big decision is versus, you know, a a relatively small decision? And that's where you have a strategic plan to help. A strategic plan will help you with those bigger decisions versus the ones that are everyday decisions, because you're going to use the priorities established in that plan to help you know. The other thing is we don't want as decision makers to slow the organization down. So it's really important, I think, that as leaders in an organization, we are very clear about what our strategic plan is so we know when to cause bottlenecks, so to speak, and when not to. One other thing I want to just point out is how important it is as a leader to be able to use data but also trust your gut in decision making. This just kind of like <laughs> unlocked a part of my brain because <laughs> I've always been very much like I like trusting my gut and there have been occasions where like I don't trust my gut and I regret it. And so I tend to do a lot of decisions based off my gut and I can't really, I can't, I could never really explain it, but like the way that you phrased it saying that it's essentially like your experience, your history, that kind of shows you like why you like, you know, yes or no kind of things with your gut. The truth is that when we can align what the data says with our gut, that's a great decision. But if the data says we should do one thing and in our gut, we're feeling that we shouldn't do it. Maybe there's something wrong with the data or maybe we should dig more until the data is aligning with what's in our gut. Because if you've done the work for a period of time, you have a sense of how things should happen and you should use that experience to help you make decisions. So I'm always telling people, listen to what your gut says. And I'll tell you this. If you're wrong and let's face it, there are going to be times when we're wrong about decisions. But you, I think, feel a lot better if your gut told you to do something and you followed it and you turned out to be wrong than you would be 
if you just listened to the data, went with that, even though your gut told you not to do it. So that's how I kind of rationalize things there. So on your LinkedIn, it shows that you teach at Columbia University's School of Professional Studies as a lecturer in the nonprofit yeah. program. Yeah. What is the three most important takeaways you hope your students learn about working and being su- successful in the nonprofit sector? Be trustworthy. Try to do what you say you're going to do. Respect the sector and respect those who work in it. To me, those are the number one things. Number two is to be collaborative. Don't simply focus on the work in your organization, although you're going to do mostly that, but find some time to engage in the work of the sector at large. And then I would say third probably would be to continue to learn and innovate and don't let fear of what may not happen or what may happen hold you back. Okay, well, this is awesome. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy week to talk to me for my class. And we'll definitely keep in touch. I really appreciate it. Well, Laura, thank you so much for hosting me in this podcast, in the Heart of Giving podcast. I hope that my answers to your questions were helpful. I hope those listening will have gotten something from these answers as well. And I would love your feedback as always. For those of you listening for the first time, you can see many more of these podcasts and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to give.org where you can make a donation and we will be grateful for your support. Thank you for listening and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.